Well, good evening. Welcome. Um, some of you probably realize we have a little bit of a different um, chair setup um, situation this evening. We've got we've got more chairs in here, and um, of course, because of Easter celebration this weekend, which we're really looking forward to. And I know churches all around the city are looking forward to it. Um, there's, I know a lot of people have asked about, you know, Good Friday services. One of the churches that, that we have partnered with in town, we have a very good relationship with uh, First Pres. Um, our own Pastor Dick Foth is going to be speaking at their Friday, uh, Good Friday afternoon service. They have services each, each day of the week. So we definitely want to let you know about those, all of those days that are fantastic opportunities for us as the body of Christ in the whole community just to gather and to really think about this is, this is the fulcrum of our year for a good reason, um, the celebration of Easter. There's nothing more important than Easter. Um, let me invite our ushers to come forward for our weekly tithes and offering. Um, many people have come prepared to, uh, to give, and thank you for your faithfulness in that regard. That, that really um, is what allows us as the body of Christ to make that impact. So we've, we've already prayed. You can go ahead and pass those if you would, thank you. Um, oh, one other thing uh, along with that, too, because of our different setup here tonight, at the end of our night, for those of you who are regulars, you know that we, we kind of do this, um, and I know this is the real reason why a good portion of you come. Uh, we have snack time and um, fellowship time, and, and so we have, uh, in fact, I wrote down what we were having tonight, uh, just so you don't leave in the middle of the sermon, brownies, raspberry bars, I think those are homemade, and mini cinnamon rolls. So um, we're not going to have them in the back as normal, the back of the auditorium, because we're, we're so full of chairs. So we're just going to open up the back doors, and can we just go out the back? And we've got some tables set up in the kind of the mall uh, area, and we could just hang out back there as well, okay? So we usually end a couple minutes early, and you can go get your kids for that. Um, <clears throat> we're, we're in a series looking at... Um, what is Easter really about? And, and so focusing in on the Christ story. And so we've been looking at this whole concept of the Christ story, and specifically, specifically looking at the different elements as we think about who is, who is Christ, and revealed in, in Philippians chapter 2 is this fabulous, beautiful, poetic, um, well-articulated statement uh, that, that Paul gives about what it is that, that our life centers on, and that is how God has moved out toward us in the incarnation. And so what we did is the first week we talked about the incarnation, the idea of God taking on not just... Man, yeah, time out. Let's go ahead and get those brownies out. Break them. That's a sign. We're going to have brownies right now. Um, sorry, that wasn't latched on very well. Um, I'm just going to hook this on. Give me a second here so I don't drop it again. Or it will pass the brownies out. No, because I won't get any if you pass them out. I don't want you to do that for sure. Um, and so we looked at these different ideas or uh, elements of the Christ story, and the incarnation, the idea of, of God truly becoming man, true God, true man, in the person of Jesus, and then we looked at the crucifixion, 
And we spent two weeks looking at this idea that so much of what the New Testament writers and preachers talk about is they say we preach Christ and him crucified. And it's this radical idea. We looked at that a little bit, and we'll, we'll kind of continue looking at that tonight. But we're going to turn to this, this really big idea, the resurrection. This idea that Christ wasn't just resuscitated, right? Because there are miracles of resuscitation in Scripture. Jesus, at one point, goes to this little town, Bethany. It's just a little hamlet outside of the capital of Jerusalem, where some of his supporters and friends live, Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. And there's this, uh, he, 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 he raises Lazarus from the dead. But, but it's not resurrection, because Lazarus is going to die again. This is resuscitation. But this thing about Jesus rising from the dead in this new, still corporeal, physical body, but somehow it has different properties, it has different abilities. It's, it's this different concept that we'll look at. And then next week, Pastor Rob is going to talk about this last piece what we're calling new creation. Scripture uses that sort of idea. Um, we oftentimes refer to the idea of glorification, consummation. This is the end of the story. This is the last uh, piece in the story. And so tonight, if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read this passage that, that we've been reading in this series each week. And in it, Paul is saying in uh, Philippians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 3, He's saying, because we're made in the image of God, if we get a picture of what God is like, it'll tell us how we live our lives. And so he says, because of that, let the same mind that was in Christ be in you. And then let's pick up in verse 5, explaining that. Uh, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross therefore god exalted him to the highest place gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess uh, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if, if you know that tonight we're, we're looking at this idea, we're looking at this one right here, okay, the resurrection, um, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, wait a minute. I read this text, and I didn't see the word resurrection in there. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even see it in there. And you're right. It's not in there. But what I want to suggest is that all of this Christ story, this whole thing, um, depends upon the resurrection. And, and it's not just that this text implies the resurrection, it assumes it. It doesn't even get off the ground. This whole story, these other points, everything we talk about, the whole rest of scripture, it doesn't even get off the ground without this idea that God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. It doesn't even make sense without it. Josephus is a uh, first century a Jewish historian. He's a little bit of a turncoat. In like 62, uh, he turns to Rome. So he's looked a little bit as a, as a turncoat, but he's, he's certainly no friend to 
Christianity, but he's a good historian. Much of the information that we have on, on the Jewish antiquities, the, the story of the Jews, comes to us through this historian Josephus. And Josephus tells us that if you take the first century, okay, so Jesus lived at the beginning of the first century to about 30, if you take that whole first century, and that in about the 50 years prior to it, and the 50 years after it, so kind of a 200-year window with Jesus right in the middle, roughly. If you take that period of time, there were about 10 to 12 would-be Jewish uh, messianic figures, meaning figures who stepped forward, claimed uh, a, a messianic title, led the people, and it always ended in some sort of, of, a, of a revolt against Rome, because that was the concept of what a Messiah would do. Remember, this is a descendant of David, a king. And so we have 10 to 12 uh, kind of would-be messiahs in history. And we know what they did. We know that, that, that they taught about the, all of them. We know that they taught about the kingdom of God. We know that they promised their followers um, signs of salvation, deliverance from Rome. And um, we know that all of them, just about, except one, all of the movements came to a, a, a very dramatic and a very obvious end. And what signaled the end for every single one, except one, was the violent death of their, of their founder, or at least kind of their key leader in some way. And um, that, that was the end of the story. Now, it's interesting, you might not know this, but in the book of Acts, we actually have two of those 10 to 12 guys named. In Acts chapter 5, verse 33, Peter... This is after the resurrection, and uh, Peter and the followers, they're going around, and, and they're speaking of this message. This God, he became incarnate, and he was crucified, and we did it. We're responsible, but he's resurrected, and he's coming again. This is the message they're telling, and they're doing this in the temple courts, and the Sanhedrin, which is kind of the Jewish uh, leadership, take them, and they bring them into their presence, and they're trying to decide, what do we do with these guys? Because we certainly don't want them preaching this message. This is another revolt movement. We thought we ended it. And so this debate ensues among the Sanhedrin, and Acts chapter 5 records it. Listen to verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious, meaning they said, hey, we're going to listen to God and not you. That's really our first priority. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin, and he ordered the men, this is Peter and all the others, he ordered them out. He said, go out, give us some time to dialogue. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. He said, men of Israel, consider carefully what we intend to do. He said, some time ago, Theodos, this is one of these 10 to 12 messianic figures that Josephus mentions, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and his followers were dispersed. It all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, led a band of people in revolt, he too was killed, and his followers were scattered. He says, therefore, in the present case, here's my advice. Leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is only of human origin, it'll fail. It's got to. That's what happens every single time. And then he has this interesting statement. He says, but even if it is, you know, if, it, if it's from God, um, you will not be able to stop him. You'll find yourselves fighting against God himself if he is behind this. And he said he persuaded them, because this is a good argument, 
that he's making. And it says, and so they, they brought him in, they scourged him, they beat him, and then they let him go. But they didn't seek the death penalty, which is what they were first going for. Now, here's, here's the deal. What the Jewish rabbi Gamaliel was doing is referring to a well-known formula within Jewish history. We could put it like this. If you have a Messiah, but we're not sure if he is, you know, Messiah, he's claiming to be kind of a would-be Messiah, but you add to that he's killed, okay, by the enemies, gives you no Messiah, <laughs> okay, real obvious, okay, very, very obvious here, and, and he's making an argument of, of, of history saying there's a certain way that this always goes. Now, um, historians will tell you that all of these would-be messiahs, again, had the same ending, being, being killed uh, by Rome. And each time, these, tend to, you know, these movements, they had two options, okay? Your messiah is killed. You've got two options. Your first option is, is, you, is you give it up, and you go live out the rest of your life in a peaceful existence. You find somewhere, okay? You give up the cause. The second option is you find a new messiah. I mean, those really are the only two options that they had. Now, the bizarre part, I mean, just as a, as a historian would look at this, sort of the anomaly of all these examples, one that just doesn't make sense given this formula, is that the followers of Jesus were the only Jewish group which said they're recently crucified by Rome, Jesus, was the Messiah, and thereby the Lord of the world, the master of the universe. Now, why would that be? Because this formula is proven throughout history. This works. So what, what happens? There's something different here. Um, why would they say what no other group did? Because see, there's a, there's a difference, right? There's, a, there's another factor that we have to enter here. There's an, another addition. The resurrection, right? There's one element that is totally different than any others that God had raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. See, this is why Paul, one of the guys who was, who was very much understanding this idea and was against these early Jewish followers of Jesus, had, had some of them killed, persecuting them, but strangely enough actually became a follower of this Jesus. This is why in 1 Corinthians 15, he wrote this. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5, he said, For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. Now, let me actually just kind of make a parenthetical statement. By the way, it's interesting. Scholars have, have figured out that, that that language he used there where he says, what I, what I received, I passed on as a first importance. He's actually using technical rabbinic or rabbi language to refer to the passing on of sacred scripture. So he understood it already as this. This is something, this is information that he didn't write, he received. This information predates Paul, goes back to the very beginning. Um, and he says uh, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. See, the earliest, uh, earliest Christians understood that the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth was something to stick their neck out for. Um, this faith was rooted in an historical event. 
it was not blind faith to the early followers. It was faith in an historical event in time, space, history. That's why just a few verses later in the same chapter, Paul writes this, and this is pretty radical. Verse 14, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, okay, this time, space, event thing didn't really, really happen, he says our preaching, he's meaning our truth claims, our preaching is useless, guess what? So is your faith, he says. He says more than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God. Guess what happens to people who are false witnesses about God to a Jewish mind? This is a false prophet. And he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. He restates it again. Worse than that, even you're still in your sins. Because no, one, no one's absolved you from your sins. And he says, even worse than that, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, meaning those who believed that the resurrection would come, who have trusted in Christ the dead, he says, they're worm food. That's the end of the story. There's no resurrection beyond that. If only for this life, he finishes, if, if we only have hope, if it only gives you good feelings and peace and whatever, he says, we're to be pitied above everyone because it's an absolute sham and we're believing it. So the very first Christians did not hold this view that, well, it's meaningful to me, it makes me happy, it's, you know, but I have faith. They said, this is a true event. If it's not true, I shouldn't believe it. I should follow truth wherever it goes. If Christ has not been raised, then they realize we're like all the other would-be Messiah movements, and we need to move on. We either need to find another Messiah or go about a quiet living. But if God really did raise Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, then the most important event that's ever happened in history, they realized happened on the soil over there in Jerusalem, and that the greatest evil death itself, has been defanged, and even something more personal, that in Christ, we've just seen the next step in our own evolutionary process. C.S. <laughs> Lewis made that point one time. He said, people are always talking about what's going to be, the, I wonder what will be the next step in the evolutionary process. He said, we missed it. It was 2,000 years ago. That's the next step. Resurrection is our next step. So do you see why for the follower of Jesus... Everything, everything, everything hangs on the resurrection of Jesus and that God the Father did it. And it's not just enough to say, well, you know, Jesus might have, have, have somehow on his own survived to the cross and, you know, survived crucifixion. This had to be the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had raised him from the dead. Because if he, did, if he did, then in doing so, God the Father reversed the human verdict on Jesus. Do you remember what that was? Anyone remember what the human verdict was on Jesus? Think about some of the things that were said of him during his ministry. Uh, he's a blasphemer, right? Because he claims to, uh, you know, he makes statements about, well, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I can... Well, remember, Sabbath was given in the Ten Commandments. You're the Lord of the Sabbath. You're the Lord of the Ten Commandments. You gave the Ten Commandments? That's a bit ludicrous, right? Um, he's, um, he's a false prophet because he's pointing people to, he receives worship. People worship him, and he doesn't say, no, 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 don't do that. That's inappropriate. He says, I'll take it. Wait a minute. Only Yahweh is, is worthy of receiving worship. 
And worst of all, the human verdict was that he was forsaken by God, that God was not on his side, that God had forsaken him. Now, remember when Jesus was on the cross, some of the Jewish leaders, he's hanging on the cross. This is, this is near his, uh, his death that, that, that we're going to remember this Friday. It's on a Friday. And in, in Matthew 27, 42, some of the Jewish leaders around him make this statement. They said, he saved others. You know, he was really good at that. He performed miracles. He raised Lazarus from the He saved others, but he can't save himself. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? He's the king of Israel, after all. Look what's over his head. Let him come down from the cross, he says, and we will believe him. Right? Today, one of, I, I would suggest, maybe one of the most misunderstood statements by, by, by Jesus in the Bible are some words that he spoke right before he died. We could probably quote him, my God, my God. Another question, what is it? Yeah. Why have you forsaken me? Now, oftentimes people sit, read this, hear this, and suggest that Jesus is saying something like, oh, God's turned his face on me. He has left me. There's a, there's a rift between God and me. He, he has truly abandoned me. But here's the problem with that. Jesus is not senselessly screaming out in frustration, okay? Um, he's specifically quoting some words that King David wrote centuries before in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 starts with those words. He's quoting a Davidic king psalm that David wrote. Further, to the Jewish mind, you know, the Jewish mind had, had much of the book of Psalms uh, put to memory, much like you could turn on your radio and a song comes on and you could just sing along with it, right? Because we, they've just internalized. It was their music. This, this is what was sung. So to the Jewish mind, if, if, if someone makes a statement, uh, maybe the first line of a psalm, you know, someone says the first sign, uh, line of a song to you, if you know it well, it's not just that line that's meaningful, it's, it's the whole song that kind of comes up in your mind that you might think about. Well, think about this. Let me just read for you some verses from Psalm 22, because I would suggest that Jesus is saying something radically different than what you might think he's saying when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? And for a very important reason. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'm going to go through it and not read everything because it's an awfully long psalm here, but let me just kind of get to the heart of it. Verse 7, all who seek, who see me, mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround. Remember, dogs is remember Jesus referred to the Samaritan woman as dog is a concept of a of a non-Jew. He says even even the 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 non-Jews are against me. The Gentiles, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. And he says they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Verse twenty-two. But I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. Now, this is the interesting part. 
verse 24 says, for he, it's speaking of the Father, okay? The psalmist says, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help, okay? The psalm ends, the whole psalm ends with a recognition, everyone's left me. Everyone's departed. Everyone thinks I'm abandoned, but there is one who has stuck by my side, who has not turned his face, and that's God the Father. That is what Jesus is claiming while hanging on the cross, while giving every pretense that he has been abandoned, not only by people, but by God himself. See, Jesus quotes this psalm in order for his Jewish accusers to realize in that moment what they've done. Because that whole psalm comes back to mind, and they're seeing that. Him encircled, hands and feet pierced, clothing gambled for, and believing that everyone's left him, but his assurance that God has not turned his face, has not abandoned him. See, there's this Old Testament uh, law given in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21, 22 says, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. And the Jews applied the same meaning of, of hanging on a tree to a Roman cross. In fact, uh, Luke, who, who wrote the book of Acts, records Peter and Paul referring to this idea that Jesus hung on a tree. That's why Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by taking his curse, our curse, rather, by taking our curse upon him. And so we also see that he was, he was perfectly pleasing to the Father, and that while he was forsaken by people, totally abandoned, his closest 12, right? Peter denies him three times. His closest 12 have absolutely abandoned him, and he's left to the dogs. And yet, he was not forsaken. He was not abandoned. The Father had not turned his face on him. So when Jesus quotes Psalm 22, he wasn't saying that God had rejected him. He was saying the exact opposite to the person who knew it. This would be, let me kind of give you an example. If you grew up in a, in a how many of you grew up in a church setting where you, where you sung some of the hymns? Okay, okay. Um, I'll give you an example that'll be, if you didn't, you, you, this probably won't be meaningful to you, but suppose someone came up to uh, you and they said, um, how are you doing? How are things going? And you say, well, I go to the garden alone. Okay. How many of you know what I'm talking about? What are the next words? Well, the dew is still on the roses, right? And the sound I hear falling on my ear, so beautiful, right? The birds hush their singing. As it says, and he, it's speaking of God, and he walks with me, he talks with me, he tells me I'm his own. It's this deep song of intimacy, right? If you had never heard that song, and someone said, how are you doing? He said, I go to the garden alone. Oh, you're totally alone, and no one's with you. No, the exact opposite. No one's with me but God. God is still there. And there's a deep intimacy, and there is no light that comes between the two of us. It's perfect intimacy. This is what Jesus was saying. And by God raising Jesus from the dead, the father had vindicated his son. Because see, this whole thing here, you know, killing by the enemy, that, throws, that, that sheds a lot of you know, suspicion, some doubt on, are you really the Messiah? Because you can't be killed by the enemy and still be that. 
So the resurrection vindicates this formula, sets it right, demonstrates that he was accepted and approved by the Father, and he had not turned his face, as he quotes in Psalm 22, from him. But rather, as we read in our verse, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, this is verse 9 and 10 of our Philippians passage, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of the Father. And so only because of, Scripture tells, only, only because of the resurrection, that, that his early followers preached Christ and Christ crucified. This is, in fact, what they were mocked for. Um, there's, a, there's an old image. You know what the very first picture of the cross, the very first drawing of, uh, of a crucifix ever was? And it was found in the second century. Uh, it's, it's some graffiti that, that reads, Alexa Menos worships his God. This, this was a graffiti mocking a man named Alexa Menos who's, who's a Christian, who's a follower of this Jesus, and mocking him. It has an image of a, of a man crucified but with a donkey's head on him, kind of with an obvious parallel to our culture, what we refer to and we refer to someone as a donkey. This, this idiotic religion, you worship a God who was crucified. How can that possibly be? Resurrection. It's the only possible way. And so the foolishness, the absolute foolishness of the cross, with it, God confounded, Scripture tells us, the wise of this world. And he did something in, in weakness that no human king could do, no human priest has ever been able to accomplish, no human prophet has ever been able to produce, and that is to serve the final death blow to death itself, and to begin something that we're going to talk about next week, new creation. See, the next step in our evolutionary process, if we can use that, that picture, is resurrection. And so scripture, in Scripture, the writers constantly go back to this idea that in Christ, I've seen a foretaste, a, a shadow, a picture of, of how we shall be when he returns. And that's our hope. And see, oftentimes, again, we'll talk about this next week, oftentimes when we think about the end of the story, we say, oh, oh, heaven, meaning sort of disembodiment. And I like what N.T. Wright says. He says, heaven's really important, but it's not the end of the world. <laughs> uh, there's something after that, and that's resurrection. New heavens, new earth. Physical cosmos restored. Creation lost in Genesis becomes creation restored at the other end of the story. And it's only because of that hope that we don't take the philosophy that we read about in 1 Corinthians 15, same passage we, we were reading earlier, where Paul quotes the Epicureans, the philosophers, who say, well, the flesh doesn't matter, it's going to die, so just eat, drink, and be merry. Feed it, because it's, it's all going to burn anyway. No, 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 no. <laughs> Resurrection. That gives totally different meaning. It propels what we do. And do you know how Psalm 22 ends? This passage that, that Jesus quotes, I love this. Psalm 22, verse 29, ends this way. All the rich of the earth 
will feast and worship. Worship in this idea is lying down. Even the rich people will be lying on their bellies before God. And all who go down in the dust, this is the dead who have gone on, will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. And listen to this, this is awesome. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to people yet unborn. You know what they're going to declare? He has done it. You know who the yet unborn are? That's us. He's talking about us. And one of the things that we do every single week, because it is probably the most meaningful thing you could ever do this side of eternity, and that is to, in these words here, future generations will proclaim his righteousness. Every time we take communion, we hold a little cup, we're going to take a little piece of bread. Paul says we proclaim his death, his righteousness, that this was not just another would-be Messiah who tried a coup and it failed. This is the risen Lord who stepped down out of eternity into time-space history and eternally is now the God-man, truly God, truly man, and took the curse that was deserved of me upon himself and yet was totally approved by the Father and accepted. And because of that, he gives that approval to you and he gives that approval to me. And when we celebrate it, we proclaim this statement at the end of what Jesus had in mind as he hung on the cross. He has done it. On Easter morning, we're going to say, I bet, because Pastor Gary always loves saying it, right? You know what it is. He, he has risen. You know, that's just another way of saying this, right? He's done it. He's risen. 